I'm just really excited to get in this book. It's actually our mom's favorite book. She's been trying to get us to read it forever. So it's, I, your, I'll tell you uh, what, man, it's a book. My mom put that book in my hands, you know? Yep, so it's exactly. a book that I feel like Got Black this. mothers perhaps have, there's a pipeline. Welcome back to the Real Ballers Read podcast. We have a very special guest. We have Hanif Al-Durakib, who is a poet and writer from Columbus, Ohio. He has a perceptive eye of history, a wonderful ear for the rhythm of his emotions, an earthy and aquatic feel for language, a captivating taste of music, and a love for the smell of a fresh pair of sneakers. Hanif, welcome to the show. Yo, thanks for having Welcome. me. Yo. I really appreciate being here. Yes, um, please uh, tell us about the book that, that you chose to talk about and a little bit about the first time that you read it. Yeah, I chose B.B. Moore Campbell's Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, which um, was a book that I first encountered in my mother's library, which, you know, my parents had kind of... Um, I actually don't remember if their book collections were separate, but they were definitely distinct tastes. You know, they might've been in the same bookshelf, but it was clear what books were kind of my mother's books and what books my pops was reading. My mom read a lot of black women, a lot of black women fiction writers. And um, I gravitated towards your blues ain't like mine because of the cover. The one that she had, I don't remember the edition. I want to say it's the first edition one with a really bright yellow cover. Um, and I just kind of picked it up. I was young. I was probably, you know, too young to be reading this book. Um, maybe 11 or 12, but I was so captivated by its opening. By this point in my life, I had learned about Emmett Till. And, I, and by that, I mean, I learned about Emmett Till in my house. You know, like I grew up in a house where, thankfully, I grew up with Black parents who, um, knew well the perils of America's education system and what would be kept from us as, as young black people um, in terms of like learning history in a way that did not attempt to underscore violence, right? And to draw a direct line from the inception of violence to its reverberations through generations. So, I had learned about Emmett Till in a very stark way. Um, you know, I'd, I'd learned about the transatlantic slave trade in a very stark way. I'd learned about Medgar Evers in a very stark way, these kind of things. And so I was drawn to the beginning of Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, which um, of course kind of mirrors the murder of Emmett Till. Um, or at least is kind of, that is the container in which the narrative is built. And so I, I was really captivated by the beginning of it. But what grew to captivate me more is that that is how the book begins right away. And then there's, to have a book begin with that violin of a death was captivating to me as a young person because I was only familiar with death as uh, an ending point, a departure point. And, um, I, I was just kind of drawn in by, by what this book offered at its opening. The, the death as a starting point, you're referring to the death of Armstrong Todd, who was supposed to be yeah. the, the Emmett Till of the situation. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, B.B. Moore Campbell makes it so clear the ways in which he continues to like haunt um, characters in the book in different ways. Um, so I guess uh, one question is like, how is this book and just the way that she written it, how is that, how's this book haunted you in any way? Um, Cause you know, the first time you read it was so young, but yeah, uh, we could clearly see some things in the book that we feel like you uh, definitely like were inspired by um, just from sure. knowing your own writing. So could you just talk more about yeah. like the influences had on you on the long term? Absolutely. I mean, I, I still read, you know, it's one of those books. There are books that I return to annually or biannually or every few years. This book is, I read it every few years because it's really intense and I um, could not consume it happily every year. But one lesson that I learned at a very young age when, when I read it was that death has, there's a reality in how death echoes through generations. At the point I read this book, I had not lost anyone who meant anything to me yet. I would soon in coming years and then in many years after. And um, there's something that I learned early on about the way grief kind of makes itself a resident. Grief is a resident that moves into our, to our bodies. Um, and through its residency, it becomes, it, it takes control in a way. And so that at some point, um, we are residents to our grief the way we are residents to our uh, to a, a great many emotions. And this book did such a good job of articulating that through those many generations. And I, I surely was not thinking through this when I was like 11 years old or 12 years old. But as I've grown with this book and I've grown with reading it, there's a tenderness afforded to everyone, even the characters that I am predisposed to really dislike, you know, um, even the murderers, even the, the lovers of the murderers, even, you know, and it's not, it's not a sympathy that I think, and I, you know, I, I can't speak for B.B. Moore Campbell, but it's not a sympathy that I think is born out of you, reader, should feel bad for these racist murderers. It's instead a the kind of dull sympathy of living, where it's kind of like, look at this life, you know, look at what look at what's become of this life. Isn't that something? I, I think maybe the tone of the book is so richly sympathetic towards these black characters that perhaps there's no way to write through that without at least casting the sympathy of shame on its on its white characters. And I um I'm not saying that I feel bad for Floyd or for it's Floyd, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Floyd. Yep. Um I'm not saying I feel bad for Floyd or even Lily. You know, I don't feel bad for these folks, but I am called to at least analyze why I might want them dead, mm. right? And I think this book does such a good job of holding a reader to account in, in, in its storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think what B.B. Moore Campbell does 
so beautifully is kind of as you're saying you're analyzing the characters the characters themselves are doing the same things i'm thinking yeah. of ida and Lily specifically because they have this interesting re- relationship and like at that same time of the book where your take on Lily is changing ida is like i hate white people so much but i also you know still love my friend and i want to tell my 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 friend about you know these these dreams that i've been having and and we have so much in common but i hate her so much and i i thought that was a really interesting technique because it was like her characters were reading the novel itself right yeah the same characters that she was creating that ida lily dynamic is so fascinating one it's it's hard to and i don't know the exact page count in this book but this book is so densely populated, yeah. you know, with, with people, with story. It's, and it doesn't feel that way. It also bears mentioning that this is her first book. Yep. And um, her, her there's a real book. risk to that, I think, you know, because this book requires a really tight dexterity and in, in narrative ability because it is so densely populated. And not extensively populated with people, with stories, with years. I mean, it's just, it, it would, a lesser writer, I think, would get lost in this. A, a lesser writer would not know what threads to pull and when. The fact that the, the Ida Lily relationship um, itself is like its own book is so fascinating to me. You know, and the fact that happens in the book's like third act, you know, is so fascinating to me. Um, that's that's still my takeaway from this book now, even or not more than, but at least as much as the way the book moves around grief and tragedy and fear um, mm-hmm. and anger. The I've so, I learned so much from this book about how to populate your work carefully and thoughtfully, and not leave anyone in it behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about the stark way and what you learned about Emmett Till, um, yeah. I can think back to to the to that time too. I I want to say it was around the same time that I saw um Spike Lee's four four little girls documentary. We watched that in church. And right, hearing about other black children um being so brutally murdered when you're young is uh, a lot. But I, I, I think that like, especially in the context of Emmett Till, it was seen as this like martyrdom, like this first yeah, domino, right. this first catalyst in like civil rights history and like changing like the scope of like America. But what I love that B.B. Moore Campbell does, even though the history is going on in, in the background and, and we're hearing these, um, you know, key events, like it's more about the development of the history of these people, you know, mm-hmm. of, of these families. And I kind of realized through that how much work novels about the South have like done in my own consciousness and thinking about the South uh, because I, I've seen it so much as just like, a series of, of events that the novels really populate a real sense of like what it was like and who the people were. So I wanted you to speak a little bit more about like 
you know, both how this, this book and other books and other works of fiction about the South have like informed your view of it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Black writers writing about the South fascinate me. And B.B. Moore Campbell is not, not Southern, to be clear. I mean, she's from, uh, she was from Philly, I think. Um, and though, you know, I think ancestrally, there were maybe some Southern roots, but I think about, you know, Black Southern writers and Black Southern novelists um, often because, you know, my depiction of, or my understanding of Southern America was born through folks like Hurston even, who was Southern, but also through music. You know, I often think about the way that Outkast introduced Atlanta to me when I was young, you know, when Southern Playlistic Cadillac music came out and then later AT Aliens. Um, that was all really vital to me because so much of the South, um, I, I don't know, I, I will say, I believed in the South as a futuristic place from my own seeing of it, you know, my own presence there. Um, the stories I heard told of it, the roots that I, you know, that I at least understood from the South that I had, that my friends had, that my friends' parents had, um, but also through the kind of storytelling that came out of the South. Uh, but I, I don't even think it's just Southern, you know, another book that I could have chosen that means a lot to me is, is from an Ohio writer, a Dayton writer, I believe, Virginia Hamilton, The People Could Fly. Because we talk about what isn't taught in school. You know, I remember coming up in school and learning about folk tales, American folk tales. And so rarely did those tales center Black folks. Where they did, they were like horrifying. Like the tale of John Henry is horrifying. Yeah, I was it's about pretty, to say it. It's, it's like, disgusting. It's Scary wild to me that that is taught. It, for me, it was taught in school alongside like Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed and this other type shit. But the story of John Henry is horrifying. And to have a book like The People Could Fly put in my hands when I was young and feeling detached from the kind of folktales and folklore I was hearing, to have a book that of folktales that centered on Black people arcing towards freedom, um, you know, that, that was vital to me. But still today, I mean, you know, Jasmine Ward writes about the South in a tender way and you know, there's a great many writers, Black writers from the American South who I think um, present it um, in a tender way. You know, Randall Keenan, just a lot of folks, you know. So there's a, there's a lineage there that I return to. But I think that so many Black folks perhaps set their eye on the South because it is a place that, that, that makes sense to them in a way, you know. I say B.B. Moore Campbell's from, was born in Philadelphia, but we know how migration works. We know how, you know, like before we hopped on here, we were talking about Dayton and talking about funk and, and the, that has Southern roots too because of the migratory patterns of black folks, you know? So th there's, um, there's a way that many of us are setting our sights on the South with affection, even if we are doing it from our homes elsewhere. Yeah. And that, yeah, I think that's what's, so interesting about this book um, is how 
it is about the South. And yet at the same time, it's about Chicago. Yeah. And it's about the the past, right? In terms of like slavery and beforehand for black folks uh in the Delta. Um and it's not only about those places, but the dynamic between them, the conversation, right? Like how sweet babe leaves mm-hmm. and then comes back and he's like, Hey, I want to be a teacher here. Or um when the uh activist came and said, like, yeah, no, the future is in the South as you're as you're putting it now. Um but I think that, that it just kind of calls forth the larger question about as you're saying like black migratory like movements right and what it means to be in flux almost right right? where like you know how i mean how do you see how, how do you how do you see like your relationship to place when you know black culture is so like fluid in a way well i am uh grateful for I am grateful to be from Columbus, Ohio but I'm also aware that places you know I write this in Double America and I believe it and places something that kind of happens to you places wherever your people stop moving um, you know wherever your people ran from or ran to and then stopped and I am thankful that my people stopped here but I even with that, you know, I think as I've gotten older, I feel less beholden to place um, because of that reality. Um, but I do love Columbus, Ohio. I don't want to leave. I'm here. You know, I, you know, I want to be here. Um, I don't want to live my life anywhere else, my writing life, my creative life, none of that. Um, but I also am consistently weighing what it even is to have a non-traumatic, to be at the margins in America. And there are people who are further along the margins than I am, than we are, you know? Um, But what does it mean to be at any margin in America and have a relationship with place that is, that can maintain a level of joyfulness and pleasure that is not at least a little bit colored by trauma or anxiety or rage. Um, And so I'm I'm always kind of doing that measurement on the scale when it comes to Columbus, when it comes to any place. Um, I'm comfortable here and I love it here, but I'm also very aware that my presence here, my presence is is not unlike my presence anywhere in America and that um, there's always an undercurrent that kind of hums uh, that is that at least in my case is is tinted with rage or frustration or grief um, but that does not mean that I cannot seek and find pockets of pleasure in the place that my people stopped moving mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's where I'm at yeah I think you know it was in 2020 some summer of 2020 when um everything was going on uh, with protests Mm -hmm. that I think it was either that you had tweeted or someone, I found out that like Columbus, Columbus's police department, um, his budget was like this insane number. And then I delved a little more into the history of the police brutality there. And I realized like 
I had known nothing about like my own, my own place. Um, and like, I had always assumed that, you know, these, these things have been happening elsewhere and it's still very, very much, um, a part of, a part of where I'm from and yeah. I didn't even know. And that was, yeah, that was a brutal, um, unearthing, uh, I, I had, I have felt. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm actually I'm working on the I'm working on my next book right now, which is um, I don't even know how to say what it's about. I mean, mm-hmm. the easiest thing is say that the container is is basketball and LeBron James, and <laughs> it begins in 2016 and works backwards. You know, it begins with the 2016 Cavs championship, works backwards, but it's not necessarily about basketball as much as it is as it is about place and grief and impermanence and um, who gets to make it out of a place and who doesn't. And I'm, I'm currently in the section where I'm writing about um, 2016. And I'm writing about that era from 2014 to 2016. Um, and a part of it is, for, for me, that means writing about Henry Green's murder. Police killed Henry Green in 2016 before game five of the 2016 NBA Finals, which I remember because I came home. Like, I came home... Um, to go to the memorial and then there was game five and then there was a protest the day after um and to write about 2014 in cleveland is to write about tamir rice you know to write about 2015 in cleveland is to write about tamir rice and these kind of things i think were so fascinating to watch and be kind of embroiled in because there were so many folks in ohio i knew who when shit popped off with trayvon's murder you know, Michael Brown's murder, and when the Baltimore uprisings happened, so many people in central Ohio that I knew were kind of like, well, that doesn't happen here. These kind of things don't happen here. Part of this is, is because it's so easy for us to lie about the place we love or the place we are, mm-hmm. because we don't want the place we are to be like the places we see on TV that are on fire or that are burying children. But I think it is important for people to invest in the reality that the place you are can become the place of your nightmares. And it is already, for many people, the place of nightmares. And so I'm thinking a lot about this as, uh, you know, think about 2020, for folks who've been organizing in Columbus, 2020 was just one grand culmination of some of, of a great many things that have been happening for a lot of years um perhaps re- with renewed ferocity but that is that had been coming for a while and so yeah you know it's it's been interesting because when i think about like this book and when i think about a lot of the other books i spend time with a lot of the other fiction that deals with um violence this book does such a good job. Even more Campbell does such a good job of, of explaining that one act of violence reverberates through many places and many people, through many eras. These things don't stand alone. Like the the shit popping off in 2020 with, you know, boarded up downtown and all that, that's not a standalone, that's that's not something that happened in a vacuum, you know, and um so yeah, but what you said there about the police, it, it, it brought to mind what I'm working on now is kind of 
going back toward to the mid 2010s in the era of disbelief where he's like we don't believe this is real until it's real no i mean i can't wait to to read to read this and um your point about juxtaposing lebron james in the finals and uh henry green and tamir rice brought out to mind this quote that i have from aguero that i uh got from imani perry's prophets of, of the hood and yes. he, he, he said that we are treated to the grand celebrity spectacle of black male athletes, movie stars, and pop enter- entertainers doing what celebrities are prompted as, as doing best, conspicuously enjoying the wealth and privilege that fuel ordi- ordinary citizens' material fantasies. We are also subjected to the real-time devastation and slaughter and body count of a steady stream of black males on the on at the six o'clock news, and then I think Imani Perry is the one that come commented after that that hip hop marries these two images, mm-hmm. black male superstar, and thug. And I wanted you to kind of elaborate more of this point of like, in my opinion, uh, you have you have kind of become, you know at least for, for me and Jen, a, a totally new model of what like a black man can be. So I wanted you to elaborate on like, as you were growing up, who were the black men, you know, that you looked up, up to and how did you, you know, manage that, those stereotypes and those images of them? Yeah. Well, first I say Imani Perry is brilliant. I'm so grateful mm-hmm. for Imani Perry. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from Imani Perry and, and her work. And I'm glad we could invite her into the space there because I just, I'm spending time with some of her writing right now and in, in to, to kind of keep me in the in my brain sharp. When I'm working on new projects, but there are people I return to to kind of keep me on my toes and Imani's one of them. And so- What of really hers are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading the newest one. Uh, let me, the South to, South to America. Yeah. 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 Um, and before that, I was picking back through um, the book, the letter to my son's book, uh, yep, Breathe. breathe. Uh, yeah, because um, there's a tenderness in that book that I was trying to unlock for myself that I definitely, I mean, I clearly cannot do it as, as Amani Perry is doing it because that book has a very, there's a very palpable relationship that's being articulated, but I, I needed to kind of be close to it again. Um, so I'm balancing those two, South America and Breathe. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, so it's funny because I don't say this to, you know, I, I grew up, of course, in a house with my father. Um, but I didn't find myself looking up to him. I actually, I, I don't, I know people, I know young, young, you know, men who, look up to their fathers. And that, that fascinates me. I'm really fascinated by that because, and I say this, my, my father was a, a good man who worked hard and had principles. It was like a very principled man. Um, but in our roles, I just, you know, I, it's hard for me to imagine someone looking up to their father because my father and I had such defined roles in our lives. And because he was someone who, because my father was very principled 
and I was also not a very principled young person because I was often in trouble. Um, and I was often like defying his principles. It never occurred to me to look up to him. Now, to be clear, maybe if I did, you know, <laughs> I would be in a little bit less trouble than I was when I was young. Um, in a way, I look up to my father now more in hindsight than I did when I was, which happens, I think you get older and you realize like, oh shit, this is what my parents had to deal with. You know what I mean? Like, this is what they were, you know? Uh, I get to like the end of a day of not even that hard of work and I'm, and I like don't want to take my dog for a walk, you know? And I think, damn, my dad had to like, my brother and I both played sports in, in the fall. My brother and I, like we, we played, my brother played football and I played soccer. Mm-hmm. My dad just didn't miss anything, you know? And it just blows my mind now because, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm marginally tired and I'm like, I'm not trying to do shit. And I think back and like, damn, my dad would like go to, my dad would sometimes like pull up on my brother's football practices just because, you know, that, that kind of thing. But that's to say the foolishness of youth perhaps did not allow me to look up to my father in the way that I should. And so I, I think I value platonic friendships so richly because the people I looked up to are my homies on the block who I, who I grew up alongside the people who were walking uh, alongside me, my direct peers, I looked up to them. I wanted to be like them. Now, collectively, we all wanted to be like some, someone and someone, something else, something greater, but I didn't look up to, you know, yeah, there were athletes. I loved, I loved Allen Iverson. I loved Allen Iverson so much. I loved Kevin, Kevin Garnett. Um, and there are rappers I loved and thought were cool. Um, but I, w- I wouldn't even say I looked up to those people. I looked up to the, the people who I saw the most were my homies who I grew up with. And, and for, for what it's worth, those weren't all dudes, you know, like I rolled with my crew was, was, you know, we rolled with like, there were girls in our crew too. It wasn't just boys or girls in our crew too. There was, you know, our, there, there was an expansiveness to our crew when I was a kid that allowed for a kind of openness and vulnerability that I think we were all pushed to. Um, Now, let's be clear, we were still fucking knuckleheads, you know, like knucklehead teenage dudes mostly, you know? And so I'm not saying that we were transcending planes of vulnerability at that age, but I was at least introduced to an understanding of vulnerability because some people, I don't want to dismiss or diminish this idea of relationships or proximity. The relationship of proximity is important. My crew was my crew because we lived in the same, on the same block. Would we be a crew, would we be friends if we had to travel far to each other? Who knows? But the hood was ours. And we found love among each other in the hood because that was our container. There was a freedom to that. And we looked out for each other. And those were the people I looked up to. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Yeah, you know, um, and that, that reminded me of a very specific uh, person, brother, friend, someone that we definitely look up to who's a Mamadou, um, Yatasai. And, oh, uh, yeah, homie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's like seriously OG, OG bro. Um, 
who I've looked up to as long as I've known him. And I'm like, it's funny because he's like, he seems a lot older than he is, right? He's got like an old soul, but you know, yeah, first time I met him, he's like 13 years old, you know, and like, you know, he's showing me his notebooks of rhymes and he's like, all right, now you got to get out because I got to pray real quick. But anyway, um, uh, of course, you know, one connection um, that uh, you and Mamadou share is poetry, right? So I'm curious, you know, how, where, how and where do you see uh, poetry in your blues ain't like mine? Um, like as specifically as a book, but then also just like in everything that we've been saying, like, you know, what is it, what is it like, I, I guess, like, you know, um, through your perspective as someone who, you know, writes, practices poetry, like what, what's behind it? Yeah. Well, you're blues and like my, you know, B.B. Moore Campbell is such a good writer of dialogue. Um, the poetry's in the dialogue for me. Mm. And she's such an incisive writer of dialogue because Perhaps what I was talking about earlier in terms of um, Floyd and Lily and the white characters not building in a sympathy for them, but but uh, isn't that a shame kind of feeling for them? It's because she embodies their voices so well, you know, and these voices are distinctly different from the voices of the black characters who are grieving, who are growing. Um, but there's a rhythm. It, it's because she identifies the rhythm and how black folks speak, which I think Hurston did you know, Hurston is the gold standard of that for me. B. Moore Campbell finds that rhythm and pulls out from that rhythm. And so there are ways that I read the, the voices of the Black characters, even but despite, you know, whether or not their, their geography, regardless of their geography, but there's a rhythm to it that I recognize, you know. So that's where the poetry is. But also, you know, broadly, I, I, this is a good time to ask me this because because I'm in between like I'm working on the new prose thing and this thing happens when I'm in, um, when I'm in book mode, where whenever I finish a chapter or a section, I kind of retreat to some poems and work on some new poems. I don't really publish a lot of poems anymore, but I still write poems. And so I, I drafted and edited three poems this week. And I find myself in a place as a poet now where I'm so interested even more than I was, and I think I've always been interested in this, but I'm so much more interested in slowing down a scene or a movement and drawing out the spectacular for as long as I can. You know, I found myself this week looking at the poems I wrote and thought, wow, like what I'm actually doing here is, is ruminating on something that's maybe five seconds long and trying to sketch it back to life in my memory. You know, I, I wrote um, one of the poems I wrote was about this, uh, about Biggie's funeral procession. And there's a moment in the video of Biggie's funeral procession where there's a dove kind of circling above the procession. And there's a, a, a moment within that moment where the dove is like above a car, a hearse with the back cut out and white flowers overflowing from the back. And there's a moment where the dove and the flowers almost intersect and they disappear into one another. And it's like a second, maybe half second, but it's something I love being a witness to so much that I couldn't stop seeing it. I wanted to put it somewhere permanent. And I think that's really, my poetry is for me chasing after, it's a pursuit of permanence. 
uh, or it's a pursuit of at least trying to reanimate the impermanent. Um, and I find myself thinking into that more. I don't think I'll ever come out. I think when it comes to like publishing poems, I, I think I'm probably done, you know, maybe here or there I'll publish a poem, but not a book again, probably. Um, you know, I think a, for, I think a fortune for your disaster is, is, is it. Um, but I still love writing poems. I still love turning the poems for that kind of learning how to animate the impermanent. That's fire. I mean, real quick, uh, you know, something that I've already noticed in the time that we've been talking is how many, how many like people almost like come into this conversation uh, <laughs> yeah, just from yeah. like listening to each other. Cause you know, um, something that, well, Jacqueline Woodson was a former guest of ours and an Ohioan uh, too. She's from, yeah. she's born out in Columbus East side. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely love her. Uh, so grateful for her because she's continued to like teach us and guide us in so many ways, um, with our own writing since that interview. Um, but that was her like main piece, slow down, slow down, slow down. Right. And yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly incredible how much, uh, I feel personally transformed just by that kind of, a of an advice, um, especially coming for her, from her. But I think like everything about how I like read and write and just exist now is like completely transformed by just that, that notion, right. Of slowness. Um, and then, you know, another, another guest that we had on actually Dr. Shauna L. Redmond, who brought up a little mm -hmm. devil in America as her book to talk about on our show. Oh, um, word. That Shana's was one of the great. first things that was one of the first things that she said too, was that you have this incredible ability to like, basically play with fractals right where you can take something so small and like blow it up really big to uh its full like beauty almost and then take something that's like really big and make it real small right it's kind of <laughs> yeah. like a throwaway piece yeah um but yeah no i just wanted yeah. to like throw throw those those people into the mix as well well i a lot of affection for both those folks especially you know like jackie woodson means the world to me um and I think, you know, playing with time, again, I mean, if we're talking about this, we're talking about B.B. Moore Campbell, too, you know, this book is also playing with time uh, in a linear fashion. I'm still playing with time. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by not, again, like I talked about the dove and the flowers. I'm not, I'm not, I know that in any moment that fascinates me, there's probably a moment within that moment that I can kind of chip away at until I have not a diamond, but the facet of a diamond, as Toni Morrison might say. Um, and I am attempting to train people's eyes and ears towards joining me in that, you know? Um, I'm having so much fun now writing about, because yes, this book does have elements of basketball in it. And writing about not, um, writing about say the anatomy of a chase down block, right? Cause I'm writing about the 2016 finals. So naturally I'm writing about the chase down block and how the anatomy of the chase down block actually ties itself back to fear. Anyone who plays a sport where they can be chased is told don't look behind you, right? If you have a fast break, if you have a breakaway run, if you're a soccer player, if you, you know, break away from pack, don't look behind you, it slows you down. 
which I don't know if there's science behind that, but there's emotional science behind it. Sure. I don't know if there's physical science, but I was so stunned because the chase down block doesn't happen. The LeBron chase down block on Iguodala doesn't happen. Like I remembered it happening. Um, I was fascinated by that because I actually don't know if it happens the way that many people remember it happening. So many people I talked to about, I was like, yeah, he was on fast break and you know, LeBron came out of nowhere, but actually LeBron doesn't come out of nowhere. He, and it wasn't a fast break though. The term fast break, when we talk about the 2016 Warriors, I think is loosely defined because they were such a fast team that like off the rebound, everything could be a fast break, which happened here, you know, like, uh, I think Iguodala grabbed the rebound, passed to Curry. Curry weaves out. Iguodala cuts on the wing. But LeBron, if you watch his trajectory, and I love this is the moment within the moment. Like the chase down block is just the culmination of a, of a really artistic arc where LeBron's trajectory begins kind of behind the basket and he loops around. And there's something fascinating that happens that I think happens with every chase down block where you can almost see a person's brain say, oh, I think I can get this. And you see it around LeBron, like once he crosses half court, his strides go from long to a sprint until he gets to like the top of the circle. That's, that's the moment within the moment, you know? Writing about Kyrie shot over Steph Curry, you know, his step back actually isn't that vicious, but what it does for anyone who hoops like and knows if you get caught in a, in a position where someone steps back on you and you come off your feet a little bit, that's all they need. Like all Kyrie needed was Steph to kind of rock back on his heels enough so he couldn't challenge him. That's the moment within the moment, watching Steph Curry's feet. And even before that, watching Kyrie kind of lazily rock Steph to sleep with these behind the leg moves, you know, these kind of things. Um, writing about basketball and writing about like the parts of this mm. book that are about basketball afford me an opportunity to kind of do that thing I love, which is, you know, searching for those moments within the greater moment. Wow. Yeah, I have my own hilarious story of the change down block. I was actually in China at the time. I was in Beijing and yeah. I was streaming. I was streaming that last game seven on my phone and I was in a mu museum and the Wi-Fi was terrible. And in that last two minutes was probably, I would say, the most I fluctuated between absolute panic and like utter <laughs> joy because it was glitching so much. <laughs> I chased down block. I saw LeBron probably at half, half court and then block it. Yeah. <laughs> like them going down the court again. And I was like, wait, what, what happened? What happened? And like, <laughs> just to see that, that win unfold and then Kyrie shot was glitched, everything. Um, was unbelievable and just the the, the way you're ta talking about slowing down time like that is the very experience of the immersion of like watching it yeah you know, you're yeah best to translate that to the page and that again means like really getting into detail of, of the step-by-step -step emotional feeling with really every second um, and yeah, you, you, you do that. Like, I think a little double in America is like your master, your master class and like doing that, slowing down time, bringing in time and all, all kinds of, of, of 
of ways. I really, really love the way that you did it with um soul with soul trains specifically. Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I've been thinking it's funny, you know, Little Devil in America just turned one. It had its like first birthday last week. And um it still feels new, you know. I don't know if it's because this book has had like a long life. Um, thankfully a long life. Or if it's because I just I loved it so much that um it still feels like very much a part of me and probably will for a long time. Um and I hope every book feels that way from there, from here on out. Like I think I learned how to write a joyful book that lives in me instead of one that I kind of want to evict. Um and so yeah, I mean, I hope it stays that way. I hope it stays that way for a long time. Yeah, and was something that we were talking about too was how um, incredible it is the way that you expand performance beyond just like, you know, people on a stage, right? There's performance yeah. of like spades and, you know, dancing and crying or not crying, right? Um, and, you know, of course, just the way that you're talking about like basketball right now, like that's also very much clearly an expansion of black performance. Um, oh yeah. And a question that we had for you as well was, you know, in what ways is literature, um, you know, uh, especially like your blues and like mine, but even um, essays, poetry in general, like in what ways are, you know, literature itself also a port performance, do you think? Well, I mean, I think any place where, where people can flex or be victim to a flex, is a platform for, for, for performance and literature is no different. I think poems, especially actually one of my, to, to, to talk about flex, one of my favorite poems of the past several years is Julian Randall's flex. Um, which I think is a really, uh, is maybe an articulation of this idea that language itself in the hands of, you know, um, of the, the most kind of lethal writers can be a flex, you know? Um, I know when I hit a good sentence and I know when I'm kind of on my, on top of my shit um, in the feeling that I get, you know, I played sports growing up and it's the same kind of feeling I got. I got, if I shot a jump shot that I knew was going in, you know, um, it's the same kind of feeling that I got if I, got the ball, you know, if I was playing soccer and I got the ball right on my foot in the right spot in front of the right goalie who I know I could beat. That's what it is kind of this idea of, I don't really, um, I'm not a very confident person by nature, but there are days where I need to write myself into the lie that I'm the, the, the greatest writer alive, you know, because those are the days that it doesn't come you know, the days of work comes easily. I'm content being who I am, who is someone who's, I think, um, good enough at telling a story and who can captivate people occasionally. But on the days where I'm running into where I want to write and the words are coming, but they're not coming well, um, I need those good sentences. I need to perform myself into something greater than I am because uh, that will get me where I need to be beyond, beyond the kind of lull of, you know, it's, it's like, it's like everything else. I, um, I know when I'm going to have good days running and bad days running as I still run every day almost. 
And I can tell in the first 10 minutes what kind of run it's going to be, you know? Um, and sometimes if on the days where it's not a great run, if the shuffle, if my running, my unwieldy, ridiculous running playlist that is now, I need to start it all over again, but it's like 12 years old and it's, it's, it's just like thousands of songs anyway. But if the right, the right song hits, a perfect example of this is um, the other day I, was, I started out on a run and I just wasn't feeling it. But I had been, I'd been playing a lot of the Dreamville tape, Dreamville DJ drama tape. Oh, yeah. And um, this thing had happened and I put some of it on my running playlist, which to folks who know, my running playlist, I just add songs to it all the time. And so that's why it's thousands of songs over like 13 years. Um, but I think because I just been like listening to the, the Dreamville tape a lot, Stick came up, the, the, the first track on there came up on the playlist. And I was like, this is a song I need to turn this run from not great to great, you know? So writing is, writing is that too. It's all a performance for me because um, running is a performance for me. Anything, I'm stepping into a place where I'm required to be better than I would be left to my own devices. One thing about me is that I'm very disciplined, but also pretty lazy, uh, which is, you know, that's a, that's a different kind of thing. There are folks who are both hardworking and disciplined, like say a Michael Jordan. There are folks who are hardworking and undisciplined, say Dennis Rodman. And then, you know, there's like me who is not that, you know, organically not very hardworking. I'm pretty lazy, but I'm immensely disciplined. And so almost everything I do is a performance because I have to perform my way towards the work that I don't necessarily want to do, but will feel good doing, you know? Um, and so I think maybe there's, there's multiple levels there to how writing feels like a performance for me. Wow, that's that's such a hilarious coincidence that that you say that uh, coincidence on two two levels and 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 you'll see see why. Um, so at the very start of quarantine was when I first picked up your book. They 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 can't kill us until they kill us. And after I I finished reading it, this is exactly what I wrote in my notes app. I said I can imagine. Hanif coming into the locker into the locker room full of writers, just saying that everyone else is fighting for second place, then make all thirty shots. Huh. And then the week after, I picked up your collection of poems, and you talk about the very Larry Bird story. Oh, Larry Bird moment, where yeah. Does, where he does that, but like, right? It's just funny how already I interpreted like, wow, this this this, this guy is operating at a at a level where like he has to have such a strong self-belief in my confidence and what he's doing in order to pull off what he's 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 doing and I, yeah. I guess um one of the quiet questions that I've had ongoing about your writing is um you almost to connect it back to B.B. Moore Campbell too have granted your your yourself you know this full complexity and range of emotions um 
in in crafting, you know, kind of who who you are on the page. And I wanted to, to know how you have felt that writing of yourself has helped, you know, clarify or help your uh, self-image or how it's affected, like how others have viewed you, even in your close friend, friend, friend friendships. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I will say you are right that part of me has to kind of build up my confidence because a lot of people are better than I am in terms of writing. You know, a lot of writers are better writers than I am. A lot, I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by books right now of writers who are better writers than I am. But I do think I, I pursue curiosity more aggressively and more robustly than a lot of people. You know, that's where I make up my ground. Not to keep returning to sports, but, I, you know, because I grew up playing sports and because I grew up not very tall, and I'm still not very tall, I learned really early on in sports that there had to be, if these were the circumstances that I existed in, if I was, the, you know, if I was not going to be any taller, which I knew early on I was not going to be any taller, then I had to find a way to make up ground. And I think the same about writing. There are just a lot of people who are more gifted than I am, people who have more formal education in writing than I do, people who are more inventive than I am, people who take bigger risks. Um, but I will pursue a curiosity until I find the beauty in it. And I won't stop, you know, and I'll keep teasing out things. I'll keep enhancing a photo until I find something I can, and no, not a lot of people are going to go to those lengths. And that's where I make up my ground. Now, in terms of how my writing impacts, you know, most of, I'm so oblivious to how I'm perceived by others. I have to be, I think, not, not my close friends. I think, um, Thankfully, though, most of my closest friends are here in Columbus and they've known me for so long before I wrote anything at all. So they don't really care. Um, you know, like when stuff like the MacArthur got announced, most most of my friends here, though, they were happy for me. It was like, you know, we don't really know what that is, but cool, man. You know, um, even if they did know what it was, they're like, cool, man. But you know, you're still you and that's great. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't really know how I'm perceived publicly. I, I, I don't think about it. I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that I write in a way that invites a type of familiarity or intimacy. And so that sometimes leads to, I think, um, people projecting a closeness upon me, um, you know, or projecting a kind of relationship that we maybe don't actually have but they have with my writing and that has its um (laughs) that has its pitfalls but i have gratitude i suppose for people engaging with the work Mm -hmm. um but other than that i I can't think about that because of the fact that it's just such a the me who i actually am outside of my work is is almost like aggressively uninteresting you know I think that because of not just my writing, but also because of maybe some of the things I do, people have, but even my interests that seem cool are coming out of a place of deep, I don't know, nerd isn't even a pejorative anymore, so I don't want to like rely on that word, but they're coming out of a a deep place of curiosity, which comes out of a place of isolation and, and, um, 
like I love sneakers, of course, but I don't love sneakers to be like hype, a uh, hype beast or whatever the fuck. Like <laughs> I love sneakers because I'm actually interested in the history of sneakers. I'm interested in the beauty of a, of silhouettes. I'm interested in mm-hmm. the shapes of sneakers and what sneakers can afford a, out of an outfit, like what sneakers can extract out of an outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, I love records, but I'm not like a, I'm not going to be the kind of person who's going to, you know, try to uh, enact some kind of superiority over anyone with my record collection. These kind of things. I, I like the pursuit of, I like the pursuit of the things I'm interested in and excited about, but I'm also, you know, last night I was playing PS5 until like midnight, you know, that's, and that's a night for me. Uh, and that's the night I would prefer at this point in my life, you know, just on the couch with a dog, watching TV or playing video games. Uh, I don't get those nights as much as I want to anymore. But yeah, I think the public perception of me is um, something I can't think about because I know it's probably so far off from, or at least slightly far off from what the actual interior of my life is. Wow. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the um, this point of isolation actually uh, had me bring up my own uh, quote that you just reminded me of from um, Alice Walker in Search of yeah. Our Mother's Gardens. Uh, she said that, I believe that it is from this period, from my solitary, lonely position, the position of an outcast, that I began to really see people and things, really notice relationships. The gift of loneliness is sometimes a radical vision of society or one's people that has not previously uh, been taken into account. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I actually wanted to bring that quote, not only to, you know, bring Alice Walker into the space as well, um, as another writer who, you know, has written incredibly about the South. So I, I need your help with this one. So there's a line um, towards the end of the book spoken through Ida, right, where she says yeah. that there weren't enough lawyers in Mississippi to give Black folks the justice they deserved. Um and, you know, at this point, Ida's like really pissed off because, you know, of course, there's a lot of messed up stuff going on with the catfish farming. And, you know, obviously everyone is still dealing with just all of the generations of trauma that Black people in that town have been dealing with of Hopewell, right? Um, and, you know, something in my own research of like environmental justice uh, that has really come to like, uh, really like, almost anger me a little bit and leave me very underwhelmed is how like you'll have these cases of you know really bad like hurt and trauma and you know towns communities will come together to put a case through legally right and then what happens they get some money Mm -hmm. the lawyers come through get their piece of it um and then the town is almost forgotten in a sense or is only one of you know tens hundreds of towns that like never got the national recognition or any money at all to come from it um and it just leaves me with this feeling like you know what what is often called justice is not actually like the full depths of justice right right um and i think that you know, I, I really, I, I didn't even know fully that I felt that way until I read that line and, you know, felt Ida's anger in the book. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to ask you, like, you know, what does justice mean to you? 
And as well, like, you know, in, in the context of that line, you know, the lawyers are the ones bringing justice, but, you know, maybe different conceptions of justice means that other people are bringing it, right? You see what I'm saying? So Yeah, yeah. Well, first I want to say, I don't believe we live in a just world. I don't believe the world is just, and I don't believe society is just. And therefore, I don't know if justice can be achieved in the way that I've imagined it, in the way that it, 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 the way that it exists in my, like, wildest, most ambitious dreaming, which means that um, a world has to be built for me that is more just. And I think at its core, that means spaces where folks at the margins can self-determine without depending on infrastructures that were not built for them, systems that were not built for them, systems that um, if the wind blows the right or wrong way, can enact great harm upon them, you know, and that uses, uses us, uses, I say us and mean anyone at the margins of America, um, uses them as pawns for their own impulses that, again, are not constantly serving the greater good of these folks. And so um, I think it is hard if you talk to or spend any time with, you know, I'm someone who like organizes sometimes with families who have lost loved ones to police violence, right? And there are mothers I've talked to and siblings I've talked to who absolutely want to see punishment for say a police officer, but they understand that that is actually not justice. Like we use, they might use the language of justice, the word justice, but there's an emotional understanding that there is perhaps no justice that comes with an empty room that was once filled by a loved one or having to bury someone before they are 20 or even having to bury someone at any point, right? Uh, at the hands of the state, at the hands of state violence. And um, so there's, there's the word justice and the language of justice that I think has to be presented to the public so there can be an understanding of a pursuit, but the actual structural justice that has to be achieved for me does not and cannot exist in the current makeup of society. This uh, might be pessimistic though, I, you know, there are critics who would suggest that I'm too cynical, though I actually, I actually think I'm the most optimistic I've been in years. So, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh maybe i'll get maybe there'll be a different critical response to my so-called cynicism uh <laughs> these days but perhaps when the, i think when the book is written on me uh i'll be labeled as a as a cynic more than anything else but i actually think i'm an optimist i'm a romantic but when it comes to justice i am dreaming um i'm dreaming of structural justice that i don't know if i'll be able to see in my lifetime mm. No, I mean I'm 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 called to another to another line. Uh, I'm trying to think of who is saying it. it might be Wydell. Uh, he he says at, at the end here that the the blues is some something in your soul telling yeah. you there ain't no no hope. Shit ain't ever going go go be right. So that's exactly what you're saying now. I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah, that is the very essence of the of the blues um yeah and i think i will say this i am at its core i'm at the core i think i'll you know 
I don't want to get too much in. I just said I don't really care about how I'm perceived. So I don't want to go too far down the road of um, knowing like the fact that I know that I'm perceived as a cynic. But um, I will say I'm perceived as a cynic largely by white people because they don't understand the blues. Yep. What the reality is, is that I am, I'm not a bluesman, obviously. I'm not going to describe that to myself, but I am someone who operates within an understanding of the world through the lens of the blues. And, you know, Delta blues specifically require, you know, if we're talking about the South, we're talking about the Delta, we're talking about these Delta blues, a lot of those songs are party songs, but they're party songs that you had to earn. You had to earn the party song. You had to get through, you know, you had to get through the blues to get to the, to the party song. Um, you know, Junior Kimbrough is writing party songs, but he also wrote party songs with the understanding that you get to the party song. You get through something to get to the party song. And so um, there is a party song that I am always reaching for and it comes up from time to time and I get to revel in it from time to time, but um, I don't want to underscore the reaching. I wanna be honest about the process of the reaching. And so I don't think that's cynical. I do think that is understanding the world through the lens of, of the blues aesthetic, but yeah. I love that. They, they say that, that, that you're a cynic, but then what? Like they want you to be an optimist like Bill Gates? Like what? Like Yeah, I could be, to be, I mean, realistically, I could be more optimistic about, I could be more optimistic about like trivial things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, it's weird because I am, the place where I put my most optimism is in sports, which is odd because I've rooted for terrible teams for most of my life. Like most of my adult life has been kind of bogged down by rooting for teams that are not very good, historically not very good. And yet all of my optimism is really poured into sports and these kind of, it's very odd, very, very odd. Uh, I think I've maybe shut off the part of my brain that allows me to be pessimistic about like, you know, Newcastle or the Timberwolves. And that's, you know, although I'm very optimistic about the Timberwolves right now, that's actually not true. Uh, I've been optimistic about the Timberwolves all season, but I am pessimistic about their chances in the play in tournament. So <laughs> I guess there is some pessimism because I'm coming back to my sports world. Who are they uh, playing playing next? Should I They're play? playing the Clippers in the, in the play in tournament, which worries me because Paul George is back and Norm Powell is back. It's just a, it's a mess. There should be no play in tournament. I'm very, I'm anti-play in tournament. Once I get, you know, once we, once I get through all the other injustices that uh that enrage me, I'm going to start a campaign to abolish the play in tournament. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's hilarious. Uh, definitely seem like we can talk, talk, talk to you forever, but we uh, obviously want to be re- re- respect, respect, respectful of your time. Uh, but we definitely want to ask a, f- a couple questions about music. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, what is uh one tribe song and one non-tribe song where where you feel like the rappers flows or the singers voices like very much balance each other and uh duet well that's a great question the the my favorite tribe song is busta's lament And that's interesting because it is on the least beloved of all the tribe albums. It's on the the love movement. 
<laughs> and it is a song that is pretty much just a fife song mm -hmm. but the chorus utilizes this like Busta Rhymes sample right. it's like vocal sample and there's something I love about a rap song that utilizes a vocal sample from another rapper there's a harmony there that's built mm -hmm. I'm thinking too about can't tell me nothing where mm. um which you know like I kind of have a like, no, don't talk about Kanye clause in my brain, but, <laughs> but I love, I mean, can't tell me nothing. It's just a, just a really beautiful piece of music that it's just like, for me, it's so stunning. I saw, and I think graduation was an era where he most felt, well, that's not true. I think graduation was the era where he learned he could be how to be a conductor. Like I saw the graduation tour and I saw can't tell me nothing live and he took so much time just like setting up the instruments like setting up the string section setting up the vocalist cueing them getting the, right but can't tell me nothing actually the vehicle of it is the jeezy sample and the jeezy sample is so stunning because i got it, money <laughs> yeah right so exactly so it's just for, for like for 85% of the song, the Jeezy sample is just ad-libs, right? Like it doesn't sound, yeah, and it doesn't sound like, it's not, it's like language through ad-libs, but in the song's final, final act, which is so perfect, we get Jeezy, the line, the, I'm serious, nigga, I got money. That for me changes the song entirely, right? Uh, so I love a sample like that. And so yeah, that's, that's another one perhaps. Wow, I mean, with with your tribe example though, you made you made me think of um, my favorite song off their newest al al album. We got it from here, uh, Solid Wall of, of Sound. It's that album oh, yeah. on sample, and and yeah. Busta Rhymes is on is on that one. He's too. on that one yeah. too. Yeah, but I think that that's just such a interesting, you know, you know, one the Benny and the Jets, but just the part of that song to to take and loop is. In, in, in that kind of Dillo-like way, it was just so, so wet. I'm yeah. a sucker for vocal samples, you know? Like, I think instrumentation, samples of instrumentation are great, but I'm a sucker for vocal samples. Vince Staples, on the Vince Staples album that came out yesterday, there's a beautiful what? vocal yeah. sample on, um, I just listened to the, I listened to the album for the first time this morning because I don't remember the track, but there's a track that utilizes a just stunning vocal sample that blew me away. Oh, I didn't even know he just came out with an album. Thanks for, for putting it's it great. In. It's really great. Yeah. I, I've only given it like one spin, but I'm excited to get back and you know, mm -hmm. I listened to it on my run, so I need to listen to it like in the car, I need to listen to it in the house, but I'm excited. I, I you know, I'm a big Vince Staples fan, and I think he really yeah, he's really fired, is growing. Yeah. yeah, he's really growing. He's fire. There there was another uh there's a an album that came out last month, Toby Lou. Um, oh yeah on Perishable, and it was so funny the like, I mean, first of all, the, the first song, Hopeless Romantic, is like, it is literally, it's literally perfect fire, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, and then for him to transition from that into Baby Cakes, like, blew me away because I've listened to Cruising in the Park so much. And like, obviously, well, that it, it's, uh, it's what, you know, Miles and I have a category of songs called like, you know, throwback nigga shit, but like, Cruising to the Park is so, such a great, like, song just on its own. But then for him to like, sample it the way he did i thought it was fire um, yeah because he just like completely re-transformed like what i thought that song was into like something that was great for running and like uh playing playing sports chilling everything um yeah. but uh i had another 
we had another music related question, but also connected to the book. So say, say that uh, they're making a movie. Your blues ain't like mine. Which I'm surprised they haven't yet, to be clear. I, I am too. I'm very too. surprised. I, they I'm also I'm also more surprised that they haven't done like a TV version of it. Yeah, like because then you series, could have yeah, the, yeah exactly. Because then you could have the full like extension of everyone's story. Somebody gotta adapt. I, so I hope someone listening to this no, so they gotta adapt that. Someone's this gotta is, adapt that. This this is what I'm saying though, because not only are we speaking this like series or the movie into existence, we're also speaking to existence, you producing the music inspired by the movie. Right. Yeah, so whoa. who? Yeah. So so in this your blues ain't like mine soundtrack, you know, who are, who are you bringing on? It could be uh, anyone from 68 to 05 or more. You know what I'm saying? But like, what's your <laughs> yeah. what's your take on the soundtrack for this book? Well, I would like to have both Delta blues artists and Chicago blues artists. Or people who traverse to both. You know, like, of course, Muddy Waters and yeah, Big Mama Thornton. But even in modern, you know, I would love a, a PJ Morton comes to mind. Mareba comes to mind. Um, mm-hmm. Black folks who are who have a lot of dexterity in their musical ability. Um, even kind of, uh, you know, Billy Woods, who also put out a record yesterday that I haven't gotten to yet, but I'm excited to like rappers who can kind of um, make a world, you know? Um, I feel like I could make a whole list of people and I, I don't want to bore, I don't want to bore people. Nubia Garcia, you know, there's, there's people who I think, um, what would be interesting is to make an album of, to create kind of a compilation of like Mississippi Fred McDowell, like old blues artists from the Delta and the mm. Chicago and that whole, that whole arc, people who travel that whole arc and, and compile their music and then create another disc of uh, contemporary black artists doing interpretations of those songs, right? I think that would be captivating for me. Um, you know, it might be a challenge to get the rights and all that, but uh, I would love to hear mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I would love to hear someone like Mareba covering Memphis Mini, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Wow. Those kind of I, I can see the vinyl for it now, too. The A side, B side. That'd be yeah. crazy. Yo. <laughs> no, be dope. If, if it, you know, if this ever gets made, maybe someone will tap me for it. Wow. <laughs> will do. Man. Recently, you had the honor of um, doing some of the liner notes for the What's Going On album. And oh, I- yeah. Yeah. That's that's one of the like craziest award honors I've ever like heard of, and it's not even like a typical, you know, yeah, Oscar yeah. thing. And Jan and I talk about this album a lot, um, and we talk about it in terms of what sincerity means now in like music, and we think about how like could such a politically sincere album be made now that wasn't that 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 wasn't seen as like corny and like why it's it's that that like all of our both writing and music is is has to be cloaked in this irony and cynicism and and, yeah um i don't know what your thoughts are on that well i think we're a much more jaded society now Mm -hmm. um like broadly right Nothing 
brings, and this is not a slight on Chance the Rapper, but nothing brings this to light more for me than what happened. I remember when Coloring Book came out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there was all this exuberance, and this is, you know, Coloring Book still, you know, the songs are good, whatever. Um, there was all this exuberance around Coloring Book and all of these, these write-ups about Black joy and Chance manifesting this uh, joy out of darkness or whatever. People don't remember summer 2016 is when it came out, right? Now, summer 2016 was bad, but it wasn't, it was bad in a way that for me felt like it was going to get worse, but it wasn't as bad as the worst that was coming. Um, and you give Chance the Rapper a couple of years and he comes out with more music and the, the, the immediate response had the overtones of what is this nigga so happy about? You know? And I think that actually is the thing that um, right. suggests to me nothing more pinpoints how society grows more jaded and jaded and jaded than that. The, the axis upon which Chance the Rapper's public whatever has turned. And so, no, I don't know. Wow. What's going on is such a curious and aching album. In the same way, I mean, to be clear, it's not it's not a standalone. Stevie Wonder was also making albums that had that same kind of curiosity and ache um, and tenderness too, real tenderness. Um, but I, I, there's an earnestness in it and a sweetness in it. And in in more than that, a kind of um, a call for this kind of a malleable unity that I don't think would fly very well now. Now, would the songs fly? Hell yeah, the songs are good as hell. You know, like, the, if we're talking about can the songs be so good to overcome their own quote-unquote corniness or their own, um, I don't think corniness is, is a pejorative. And so I will say that perhaps some of the shit with Chance was that those songs, the songs weren't good enough. Um, with all <laughs> love to the brother, you know, the songs, right. you know, like Hot Shower or whatever the fuck that was, that shit wasn't good enough. Um, but, but there are ways that I think thematically what's going on if, if an album like that were released today, um, the tone would have to be different. It would have to be uh, the, it would have to be different because we are in different time to be clear. And the political stakes are different, much different. And I think people's understanding of the political landscape, Black people, especially the, the, the understanding of Black people in political landscape is different than it was. It has to be. We've we evolved and seen more, and therefore I think um, the levels of, of rage sometimes overwhelm the levels of curiosity and desire for um, these vague desires for to make sense of the world. But the aching curiosity of what's going on actually, I think, propels it in a way that still has a place. Um, yeah, and, and perhaps the greatest contrast is Sly Stones, there's a riot going on, which is an answer to what's going on, right? An answer album. Pairing those two, I think, to combine those two, uh, I think there's still a place for perhaps that kind of, that kind of push and pull. Mm. where there's curiosity but there's also rage mm. i have to go listen to that album to, today i don't think it's I, great. I mean it's my favorite one of my favorite yeah. records of all time yeah. and, and to be honest like I, 
Now, let's be clear, like writing the liner notes for what's going on is maybe one of the greatest honors of my life. And I don't think I'll ever be able to, you know, I'm, notoriously, I don't really, um, well, let me tiptoe. Notoriously, I am very grateful. I have a lot of gratitude for decoration and the awards and all that, but it's not something I think about. I don't really think a lot about. Um, that, to, to me, that doesn't feed into why I do the work, but to be noticed in a way that allows for me to write liner notes for this record that has defined a lot of my life. Mm -hmm. The record of an artist who's defined a lot of my curiosities and pursuits is singular. I don't even know though if what's going on is my favorite Marvin record. You know, I'm so fascinated by Let's Get It On uh, as an album. Now to be clear, what's going on is the better album. There's always a difference between like, what is an artist's best album and what's my favorite? What's going on is a better album than Let's Get It On. I don't wanna like, I will not, anyone, um, I can't even make an argument for Let's Get It On being better than what's going on. But I, I'm, I'm drawn to Let's Get It On more. You know, I actually just recently re-spent some time with it because um, I think folks think about it as like a, an album about sex. And I think that actually maybe strips it of, like, yes it is, but also I think Marvin, I mean, he says as much in the liner notes, he was really struggling with and working his mind around the philosophies of physical intimacy to kind of pull himself out of the darkness that he'd once associated with physical intimacy. That's more interesting to me, you know? That's such a, that's so much, uh, that's a much more interesting emotional project to me. Now, the songs aren't better than the songs on what's going on, but I'm drawn to let's get it on a little bit more from the, from the standpoint of a emotional project. Just to keep yeah. you satisfied. I was about to say that. I was about to say that, bro. I was about to say that. I was about to say that because, because you listen to those lyrics, you read them and you're like, Oh shit, this is like, it's like uncomfortable. Like in a bit, like it's yeah. like, there, there's like two different things happening, right? Because of course, the first listen, you're like, "Oh man, this is sexy ass song, or whatever." But then you're like, "Yeah, you, you really hear what he's saying," and you're like, "Oh my god, this is like, this is its own like uh, hell or something." You know what I'm saying? It's just there's a lot of suffering there too. You know? Yeah, it's just... well, it's because I think for him, physical intimacy came with an understanding of suffering, or at least like yeah. it came with a a relationship to the divine that wasn't always uh, without shame or discomfort. Um, there's a, you know, the title track of Let's Get It On is stunning. And it, like from a musical arrangement standpoint is stunning, but it actually spirals into this, like the, the final act of that song really unravels into something else, into something that is um, spiritual in nature where the physical and the divine are actually intersecting. This happens a lot. And obviously we want to talk about like sexy songs or whatever, but you know, the reason that I think so many people fail to effectively cover a song like um, Untitled by D'Angelo is because people don't actually go to the place he goes to in that song's like second act. And then that he just kind of keeps repelling. And when you don't do that, the lyrics of that song are actually kind of like clinical and gross, right? They're just kind of like clinical and not great. But because you're not imbuing the lyrics with this kind of 
ascension towards the divine or this urgency, um, there's no exchange there. And therefore, like when you cross that threshold, I think of intersecting, attempting to intersect the physical and the spiritual, um, then we're not, we're actually maybe even beyond sex in the traditional sense. And we're somewhere else in a place that requires an understanding of a relationship with the body, your own body and the potential that it might never be in the company of another's again. And that is where the divine comes in, I think. I don't know. Maybe this is too high level. Also, I feel like because it's Ramadan, I should probably be talking about like non non sexy songs. I don't know. I don't know if I've broken my fast or not. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> no, I mean I don't know if it was your intention, but I'm pretty sure D'Angelo himself said that Untitled was not about sex. It's not about sex. Yeah, he was saying like it's it's about the spiritual union with with God, like what it means to um work to worship you know he's, he's and that's the boy raised in the church you know? and that's why so many people every time i hear a cover of that song even by people who can sing really well it's like oh you don't get it right. and that's fine it's hard it's a hard song to be clear it's also a hard song to to achieve a cover of but it's like okay you don't get you don't get like you maybe you heard the song but you didn't hear the architect of the song like you heard the song but you didn't hear d'angelo right um the same with Let's Get It On, where it's like everyone drags through that song's final act as though it's a requirement to get to the end. But actually, the final act of that song is where it happens, right? Where we ascend beyond the physical and get to the spiritual, which I think Marvin Gaye on Let's Get It On. Let's Get It On is, is a gospel record if you, if you allow it to be. Um, it's a record that's about hell as much as it is about heaven as much as it is about physical intimacy absolutely thank you for listening to another episode of the real ballers read podcast you can check out your blues ain't like mine and all of hanif's books including his latest a little devil in america at your local bookstore or library thank you for listening again and catch us next time